And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm delighted to welcome Pico Iyer to the program today. Pico is one of the world's great writers on our current age of travel and what it means to our ever more connected societies. He writes for many publications, including Time Magazine and Harper's, and he has authored 15 books. Today we'll talk about his latest, A Beginner's Guide to Japan, Observations and Provocations, which is published by Knopf. Pico, about the title, Observations and Provocations, exactly what are you trying to start with this book? (laughs) Well, I should say that that subtitle to my Beginner's Guide to Japan actually came from my editor. I had a much dreamier subtitle that was Glimpses into a Land of Intimate Distances. And my editor, both in New York and London, said that was much too precious. And so they wanted something as direct and brief as possible. And so I ended up with observations and provocations. And as you know, having read it, this book, which I craftily called The Beginner's Guide to Japan, is not really a book aimed at beginners, but it's a book written by a beginner. I've lived there 32 years, and I feel I know much less than when I arrived, which is why I love Japan. And it's so fascinating. I never feel I can get to the bottom of it. So provocations are really unformed generalizations from someone who doesn't have a clue. (laughs) And do you think that clue not having has been enhanced by your reticence to learn the language? Oddly, I think if I knew the language better than I do, I would still be clueless. (laughs) I quote in the book Lafcadio Hearn saying that the important thing is not to speak Japanese, but to feel Japan. And I often tell my friends, if you're going to Japan, again, more than speaking Japanese, it's important to speak silence and speak nuance and to read body language. Because the Japanese are the rare people who prefer their sentences to be as simple and as generic as possible. And they're also the rare people I think I've encountered who feel almost threatened or intruded upon by a foreigner who speaks the language very well. So they're much more comfortable with somebody like me who speaks the language as a two-year-old girl might than with someone who speaks it as a native might. And then they don't know quite how to place the foreigner. And you've lived there all these years under a tourist visa. Is the option of a residence visa not available to you? The option of a residence visa is very available to me because I have a Japanese wife, so I could easily get a spousal visa, or I could even do that unthinkable thing, get a job (laughs) and get a work visa. But I feel like a endlessly bewildered and therefore fascinated tourist there. I live there on a tourist visa to keep myself honest, to remind myself, however long I'm there, or even if I spoke much better Japanese, I'd still be a foreigner. I live on a tourist visa to put my neighbors at ease because I think they're much happier with foreigners who are coming on a temporary basis than those, again, who are threatening to intrude upon their homes and live there full time. And I suppose my whole life I've been a tourist. If I'm in the United States or England where I was born or India where my parents come from, I'm still to some degree a tourist. And that's not a bad state to be in because a tourist is somebody who's trying to learn about another culture. So I'm glad if that's a description of me. And since you've led this peripatetic life, going all around the globe, seeking a new experience, a new culture, new connections with new people, wouldn't eventually putting down roots be a new experience in of its own? It would. And I think I have put down roots in Japan over these 32 years. So I have a Japanese wife and I have two entirely Japanese stepkids. And just actually last year, I was visiting a classroom in California and a student asked me, do you ever get homesick? No, I said just what you were saying. Oh, I've been used to traveling all my life. I'm a child of Indian parents growing up in England, moving to California when I was seven. I'm used to having many homes. And then I stopped myself and said, no, actually, I am homesick right now for Japan. 
And I said that as a way of saying that home is not the place with which you have any official affiliation. It's the place that you understand or that you feel understands you. So as you were saying, I don't speak much Japanese. I don't eat much Japanese food. To the horror of my friends, I don't wear Japanese clothes. But it really does feel like a home. And those are probably the deepest roots I have in my life after 32 years there. But it's that sense of alienation or some sort of isolation that it's actually comforting in its way? Yes. I guess I've been a foreigner my whole life, so I don't mind being a very much a foreigner with a big F in Japan. But you know, I think when we choose a partner or we choose a job or we choose a home, we're looking for that mix of the foreign and the familiar. We need the foreign to keep us intellectually interested and stimulated. And we need the sense of the familiar to keep us settled and, and comforted. And so Japan is like an exotic, indecipherable version of the England I grew up in. It's, it's foreign enough to be interesting, but it really does feel like a home deep down. As we've become more aware of climate change over the years, do you feel any responsibility in your traveling on what kind of carbon footprint you have in doing all these peregrinations? Huge responsibility. And that's a really, really good question. And I think I travel much less now than I used to. So I live essentially seven months of the year in this little two-room rented apartment in Japan. We don't have a car. We don't have a bicycle. And for those seven months, my life really takes place only in the four square blocks that my size seven feet can take me. So it's a pretty simple pared down life. And when I do get on a plane, just as you say, I think one has to be really confident there's something worthwhile you're going to bring back from your trip that justifies the carbon footprint. I know cars in certain ways, I believe, are even more a threat to the environment than airplanes, but I know airplanes are no blessing <laughs> to Mother Nature either. So I'm happy to try not to travel very much at all. Partly because, as you were just saying a minute ago, one of the beauties to me of right now is if you want to see all the cultures of the world, you can probably see them in your hometown. I, I don't know much about Memphis, but I'm sure in Nashville and certainly Houston, Chicago, New York, you can learn about and encounter Ethiopia, Haiti, Vietnam, Iran, you name it, without getting in a plane. And I was thinking that these great cities of the world have become more and more cosmopolitan. You can access almost any culture in any city around the globe and that eventually they will have more in common with each other than the countries in which they are located. So true. And I feel that the big division in the world now, and we're all feeling it politically in this country or in England, is between the city and the countryside. Just as you say, I would say New York today has more in common with Shanghai and Berlin and Tokyo than with rural New York, or let alone North Dakota. And I think as an American resident, that's one of the big sins I am guilty of. So currently, this week on my book tour, I'm going to San Francisco and Nashville and New York and Boston. I know those cities pretty well. I've never been to Mississippi. I've never been to South Dakota. I'm woefully unaware of so many of my neighbors here in the United States, even as I feel quite at home in, in Japan. So that's a big problem. In Japan, what is that rural and urban divide like? I think it's much less pronounced there, partly because so many of us live in suburbs, which, you know, the elision of the rural and the urban. So I wouldn't even be able to tell you whether this little suburb of the ancient capital of Nara, where I live, is rural or urban. It's close to the center of Nara, which is 360,000 people, quite a big city. And it's a walk from the forests and, and rivers 
and very, very rural settlements that look like Japan of a thousand years ago. And I think it's one of the interesting things about Japan. As many traditional cultures, it occupies, you could say, the 8th century and the 21st century simultaneously. And you're amidst Kyoto on one side and Osaka. Is it Osaka on the other yes, side? You, yes, I, you know I, it well. I know how to use Google. <laughs> <laughs> you, that's more than I do. <laughs> so you're in between these two very major metropolitan areas as well. Yes, that's right. And, and then there's the other big city of Kobe nearby. Exactly so. And I often tell my friends, so the neighborhood where I live was created in the 1970s to look like a Californian suburb. <laughs> all the houses are Western style, all the streets are straight, not a single temple or shrine in our whole neighborhood. And even the two main drags are literally called school dory and park dory, using the English words, almost to persuade my mostly elderly neighbors that they've attained their lifelong dream of living in a Japanese version of California. So it looks exactly like the United States. But we're on the edge of this big city of Nara, bigger than Cincinnati or Pittsburgh in terms of population. And right at the heart of Nara is the largest municipal park in the whole country. And right in downtown Nara is nothing but um, an 8th century Buddhist temple, an 8th century Shinto shrine, sutra houses, big park, and 1,200 wild deer who roam around the place untamed, pretty much ruling the whole city. And so... That speaks to my image of Japan in the 21st century of this kind of synthetic makeshift mock American suburb on the edge of somewhere really deep and ancient and still filled with spirits. So Japan to me is still very much rooted in its ancient past, though it's good at wearing Western trappings. Even living in a more suburban area, that must affect the psyche. How, yes. how do you think the evolution of the last 40 years in Japan, social, psycho-wise, has taken place? Well, I think Japan is constantly changing on the surface as a way of not changing very much deep down. And as you know, I almost end my book, A Beginner's Guide to Japan, with a quote from the wartime emperor who ruled Japan from 1926 to 1989. And in 1975, he told a group of journalists, well, pre-war Japan, post-war Japan looks pretty much the same. And he was talking about what we would see as one of the biggest transformations of the 20th century. But from the Japanese are very good at distinguishing surface from depth. And so I was telling some people actually at the Southern Festival of Books yesterday how I think of Japan as an old man in the Planet Hollywood t-shirt, <laughs> wearing very global, up-to-the-minute, cool fashions, but no less old and no less Japanese for that. And in the book, you talk about Oscar Wilde, who brought so much of that sensibility back to England, but he was not a fan of consistency himself. Exactly. Yes. So many people, I think, when they arrive in Japan, talk about contradiction. But the Japanese don't see that. They would say it's complementarity. And it's not in the book, but if you were to go to Japan the last week of this year, on Christmas Eve, you will see hundreds of thousands of people flocking into Christian churches to listen to Beethoven and Bach and Handel. And then one week later, on New Year's Eve, they all go to the Buddhist temple to see great bronze bells being struck 108 times to purge the sins of the year just past. And a few hours after that, you'll see them all going to the Shinto shrine to set an auspicious tone for the coming year. So we think, well, hang on a minute. That's inconsistent. That's a contradiction. How can you go with all sincerity to a Christian church, a Buddhist temple, and a Shinto shrine in the space of eight days? And the Japanese would say, it's just like going to see your mother, your father, and your sister. You're close to each of them, but each of them serves a different 
function in your life. Each of them is responding to different needs. That's not inconsistency, it's just complementarity. And of course, as you know, if you get a Japanese bento box, a, a lunch box, they serve the appetizer, the dessert, and the main course all at once. So they say that's not a contradiction between them, they're just all serving a different function. And when I was traveling to the hotel this morning, I was thinking about inconsistency, and it doesn't necessarily always have to be a contradiction. Sometimes it serves as juxtaposition. Exactly. Precisely. And I think all of us are like that, but just maybe less so than the Japanese. You're talking to me in one way now. You're about to do a panel. You'll probably speak in a different way then. And if you were describing your morning to your mother, to your girlfriend, to your best friend from school, you describe the same events in radically different ways. Now, that doesn't mean you're two-faced or hypocritical. It does mean that you're sensitive to the different needs of the different people in your life. And I think the Japanese are extremely sensitive to that. I'll just say that, you know, as you know, I did this strange thing. I wrote two books about Japan at exactly the same time, completely contradictory to bring out in the same season for the same publishers. This book about the beginner's guide to Japan is almost like an outsider's take on Japan. And then I wrote another book, that came out four months ago called Autumn Light, which is about Japan's scene from inside. And one reason I did that was to try to be true to the fact that I'm sure you feel this about Nashville or Memphis. At different times of the day, you have radically different responses to it. And sometimes you're right in the heart of the community and you're seeing it from within and loving it. And other parts, you're on the outside being critical towards it. And that's not an inconsistency. It's just a register of the fact that every thought is provisional, every feeling is fleeting. But why did you feel you had to divide those into separate works instead of trying to integrate them? Well, I tell myself it's easier for the reader. <laughs> the secret truth, maybe it's easier for the writer. <laughs> and actually, in the past, I would have put both sides into the same book. But I wanted to stay with a very quiet mood of very little happening in my book about my neighborhood, which itself is about the contradiction between sadness and happiness. In Japan, they say life is about joyful participation in a world of sorrows. So I try to have joy and sorrow in that book. And then the other is much more analytical and cerebral, which is a whole different universe, really, from the mingled heart. So my hope was that one kind of reader might go enjoy one book and another would enjoy the other. The book in itself has a duality in its structure, yes. that you have these very brief observations, almost koan-like yes. in their simplicity, followed by then a longer anecdote that kind of illustrates the multiple points you were making before. Exactly. And so my hope was to be open-ended and to be responsive to enigma and to throw out, as you said in your first question, lots of ideas, provocations. But at the end of it, I don't think you need to understand Japan so much as to be comfortable in not understanding it. And I think that's how we are with the people closest to us in our lives, our partners, our parents. We can't get our head around them entirely. We have competing, sometimes contradictory ideas about them. And that's, I suppose, how I feel, because literally more than half my lifetime now I've spent in Japan, 32 years. So I don't want to condense it or reduce it into any explanation. I just want to come at it from different angles. And each of those angles, as you were saying, is an attempt to open a window on something beyond. But that is 32 years minus five months per year. But it feels like my real life takes place in Japan and the rest of the time I'm doing silly things. <laughs> And along the lines of juxtaposition, Japanese exports tend to be more mechanically inclined, but the yes. arts do come out. Of course, Murakami, one of the world's most well-respected novelists. And now we see probably Japan's biggest musical export since Ryuichi Sakamoto in the group Baby Metal. 
<laughs> if you're familiar with them, they are called kawaii metal, in which young women sing in a very twee manner to over top of heavy metal music. And that seems to be a contradiction to many people, but it works really well. I'm really glad you told me about that. I didn't know about it, but it sounds like the essence of Japan. I know Sakamoto, but I didn't know about that. And um, They've twee. just been on a huge American tour so far really? this year. Yeah. You use the word twee, which is not a word I hear very often. It's more I hear it in my native England, but it's a perfect word for Japan. And that juxtaposition that you just said is ideal too. So my wife, who's Japanese, very delicate, grew up in Kyoto. She knows how to make kimono and do the tea ceremony and flower arrangement, all the classical arts. She's a heavy metal fanatic. <laughs> and uh, yes, so she would probably rather see huge grunting guys from Sweden and Finland rather than young Japanese women playing the instruments. But yes, that is Japan, essence. So in dealing with these contradictions, these juxtapositions, these inconsistencies, has it led you to look inside with yourself and find out what inconsistencies help you define who you are? What a beautiful question. I don't know that seeing them in Japan has moved me to think about them in myself, but I'm keenly aware that they are in myself, and, and I don't berate myself for having them, because maybe Japan has confirmed my sense that we are socially obliged to be different people with every people we meet. And if we're just projecting our fixed personalities or dogmas or theories on everyone we meet, whether it's you, Stephen, or whoever I meet tomorrow in New York City, I think we're being profoundly insensitive to their needs and preferences. So the Japanese gift for showing a different side of themselves to each person who comes into their lives is certainly one I would like to share and learn from. It's truly our inconsistencies as people or places that define us. If we were so consistent, we would be automatons and there would be no interest in the world. Yes. I often think it, it's the tensions between us that define us. But that's a version of the same thing that I think with many writers, there's a, a longing for control and there's an inner wildness. And that's the excitement of the writing. But certainly for a writer in particular, you want to keep those inconsistencies or tensions alive because that means, as you're saying, you're never fixed and you're not repeating the same book, that each time you're looking around a new corner in yourself or in the world and trying to go somewhere you haven't been before. Actually, just before you came, I was reading or was writing an essay partly about Zadie Smith's essay called Speaking in Tongues, which is my favorite essay of the century because there she writes about Shakespeare and President Obama and herself and notes how all of them are inconsistent and that's their job. When Shakespeare writes Othello, the beauty of Othello is one minute he's inside Desdemona, one minute he's inside Othello, one minute he's inside Iago. And he has the daring and the courage to try to imagine what it is to be a young woman, to be a Moor, and to be a devil. And Zadie Smith relates to that because she grew up black and white, relatively modest circumstances in a very fancy university, and able really to see both sides of every divide. And she realizes when President Obama came to power that he can speak with the high eloquence of somebody from Harvard Law School, but he can also speak in the language of the people, somebody who grew up in Kansas and Hawaii. And how, as you're suggesting, I think, that's actually less about inconsistency than having a beautiful range and the value of being able to speak in many different tongues and voices at once. But that seems to be an aspect of Japanese culture that isn't as developed as it could be because they do not take in refugees like many other countries yes. do. Yes. I remember probably in the late 80s, early 90s, when there was a 
negative population growth in Japan, and they thought about repatriating descendants of people who had immigrated to South America, and they were having an extremely tough time reassimilating into the culture, that it can be very insular and exclusionary. Very, definitely. Geopolitically and socially, Japan is losing out by remaining so fixed in its ways and so close to people who are different, just as you say. Culturally, it's what keeps Japan Japan. And so I think their thinking is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And their society has worked quite well for a long time, certainly since the war, it's transformed itself. But in the global world, they're further and further from the rest of the world because they don't speak the language, literally or metaphorically. And as you say, they're so resistant to both foreigners and people within Japan who are different. So it's one of the things that makes it such an interesting country to be in, for me, because it's not like anywhere else. But it's also one of the things, as you say, that is holding Japan back, and it's keeping diversity at bay. I did see that in a couple of times you referred to Japanese automobiles, and I think it was in Paul Beatty's novel that he talked about how the Accord, the Civic, and such. But there are other companies in Japan that do take on more European style, the CX-9, the RX-7, things along those lines as well. Well, I'm already out of my depth. You know much more about cars than I do, but yes, interesting. I think uh, you probably remember the main time I mention a car in this book, The Beginner's Guide, is when I talk about Toyotas. And I say, I always want to get a Toyota because they're very simple. And that means nothing goes wrong. They're extremely reliable and they run for 250,000 miles and you don't have to fuss about them. My mother has a German car. It's so sensitive. Every time it goes down the block, alarms and sensors are going off. That doesn't happen with my Toyota. And I was using that, I think, as a way to talk about relationships and language. And one of the things I like about Japan, socially and conversationally, is it functions like a Toyota, minimalist, simple, and reliable, and not the kind of elaborations that get us into difficulties. So I was using the car there almost as a metaphor for the vehicle of of society. You do address the tendency toward iteration over innovation in the country as well, and pointing out a large number of patents, but relatively few Nobel Prizes. Yes, and I have a whole section on baseball, and that thought there is that Japanese people as a rule are unusually good at obeying orders. They're reluctant to take the initiative because of all the responsibility that goes with that, but they're very good at doing what they're told to do. And in the baseball context, it means they're now importing their managers from the United States often, even as they're exporting their players who are very accomplished to this country. You mentioned the original American manager brought over, Bobby Valentine, was let go for caring too much about winning. Yes, yeah, exactly. I love that. We just assume in this part of the world, winning is always a good thing. In Japan, if you're winning, there's a loser there. And so that may not be conducive to social harmony. And so in my book, Autumn Light, I write a lot about my ping pong club. When we play games, we play best of two so that usually there's no winner or loser. (laughs) Very Japanese way of doing things. That raises the question, why do we keep score? Yes. And in Japan, they're keeping score of every game, but not of all the games together. So at the end of the day, when I play ping pong in Japan, I don't know how much I've won or how much I've lost. So I'm nearly always happy. Yeah, an intriguing thing. And again, in baseball, as you know, in Japan, if the score is level after 12 innings, the game ends in a tie, which would be heresy in North America, I think. So many people talk about baseball in America. That's the beauty of the game, that there's no clock. There's no limit to it. Yes. Which is minor in comparison to cricket. (laughs) Where you play for five days and it's still a tie. No, exactly. But no limit to it. It's such a beautiful way of exactly highlighting what for me is, is the difference, especially between California, which is my American home, and Japan. So California, the great land of freedom, where it's easy to get lost 
or be lonely or to have more opportunities than you know what to do with and not do any of them. Japan is the land of limitation where they don't have any of the freedom we want, but sometimes there's a comfort in being told what to do and knowing that you're choosing between three kinds of soap instead of 300. But also in that no limit in the American game, it dictates there must be a winner That's and right. there must yes, be a yes, loser. Yes, 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 yes. Japan and doesn't want that. There is no saving face in American baseball, it seems. That's right. And Japan is all saving face and all shared destiny. They want everybody to be the same size, the same position, which is why people are encouraged almost to talk in the same way, in the same cadences. And I remember there was a survey when I got to Japan, 90% of Japanese define themselves as middle class, which wouldn't be the case in this country or England. In practice, that's probably not true, but they like to think they're like everyone else, which again is so different from the way we see things. Oh, America, quite a few people declare themselves to be middle class when they aren't and either attempt to not to seem too high of class to be worthy of scorn and to be in the working class and not want to be fixed with that stigma. That's true. That's well said. But I think when they're saying they're middle class here, people are more reluctant to say, I'm just like everyone else. They may be trying to fudge their circumstances so that, as you say, they're not the object of scorn or, or rage. But most people want to be individuals, I think, in this country. And I think you could almost say in Japan people don't want to be individuals, at least in public. There are a great number of people, I think, in America who want the freedom to be like everybody else. Oh, well, that's interesting. Well, so as you know, I have a section in this book called Just Like Us, in which I have quotes about all different countries in the world, all of which apply perfectly to Japanese. So just as I'm getting into the momentum of suggesting the ways Japan is so different from us, I do have a section about how it's similar. So maybe that's another one. And you do pull examples from other nations throughout the book, especially in the, the smaller sections, and that you could see a lot of similarities to the British upper class or mm-hmm. American old line Protestantism, in which stiff upper lip, don't complain, right. do your job and yes. know your role. Yes, indeed. America in the 50s. I, when I first arrived in this country, it was still the age of Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver and all those shows. And when I see them, that's very much a model that seems to apply to Japan right now. So in many cases, what's so outlandish about Japan is just what was the norm here maybe two generations ago. You hear the word formal. If you don't think of a fancy dance for high schoolers, you think of something that requires black tie, maybe a morning coat and tails. But formalism goes across all economic strata in Japan in following forms. Yes, because I think it's seen as a form of consideration. They have a much more exaggerated sense of their responsibilities to the commonwealth, to the public world than we do. For example, my wife cleans every item of clothing every day. She often will run the washing machine three times in a day. And the thought that I would ever wear the same pair of socks two consecutive days is horrifying to her because she thinks that's an insensitivity, rudeness towards the rest of society. But in adhering to those forms that may work for a general societal cohesion, but when people do feel constricted, it must put an incredible amount of pressure on them. Huge pressure. So I would gladly live every hour of my life in Japan, but I would never want to be Japanese because of the intensity of the pressures on them. And actually, when I first went to Japan, I wrote a book called The Lady and the Monk, and it was about how I was drawn to Japan for not exactly the formality, but for the sense of order, for the sense of selflessness, for the ancient wisdom, all the things I ascribe to them. And so many of the Japanese people I met were, of course, drawn to America, longing for the freedom and sense of opportunity that they rightly associate with us here. So, yes, the grass is always greener, and Japanese people I know long for the things that their society doesn't offer them. 
I've had this pet theory that all human behavior is an attempt to ameliorate anxiety. We eat so that we don't fear that we starve. We form relationships so that we, we because of our fear of being alone. Mm. And then further in that, laws are not there to punish transgressors, but to remove as much tension from daily life as possible that, you know, if you stop at a stoplight when it is red and it's green, you can proceed to the stoplight and not worry about getting into a collision. Mm. And these laws are there to assuage us and make our lives more simple. Well, I love that theory and the Japanese would love it even more because that's how I think Confucian societies East and East Asia function as a whole, but especially Japan, which has a huge number of laws and therefore is the safest, most friction-free society around. Japan's problem there is it doesn't prepare its citizens very well for being anywhere other than Japan. When they come here, they're very shocked and unsettled uh, by jaywalking or whatever it might be. But yes, I have a lot of instances in the book whereby adults are treated almost like kindergartners. You know, when I go to my local health club, I'm told what side of the stairs to walk on. I'm given special slippers I have to use in the toilet. There are laminated signs everywhere reminding me as if I was a four-year-old what to do and how to respect other people. And those announcements are always in the trains as well. So yeah, it's a very law-abiding society and therefore much of the uncertainty of life is taken out of it. So I think they're working on the assumption that is your theory. The kawaii culture of cuteness. And yes. you mentioned so many public services have mascots of their own. They attempt this cuteness in order to ingratiate themselves with the customers or the citizens. Yes, I think Japan is a society of reassurances. The cartoons everywhere and the way that even their leaders are portrayed affectionately as cartoon characters. We think that's a way of infantilizing. I think it's a way of reducing everything to sweetness and light and again sort of taking out some of the shadows of the world that you were mentioning. So Japan is always saying to its people, don't worry, everything is okay. We're living in this you know, wonder world, which, yeah, of course, is not always the case. And you do touch briefly on anime, and also the adults are much more likely to read graphic novels and manga. And, and I was wondering about the tendency toward this intermediary form in which to deal with reality as opposed to a more literal interpretation through a live-action film or a naturalist novel. Yes, I mean, they do have 2.5-dimension characters there. It's a phrase I'd never heard until I got to Japan. And as you know, it's getting a lot of play over here People, elderly couples who don't have daughters, will go and hire an actress to come and visit them and play their daughter every Sunday afternoon, which is the kind of thing that we can't get our heads around. So when the actress comes and says, hi, mom, hi, dad, let's have a nice Sunday together, the elderly couple are choosing to suspend disbelief and pretend this is their real daughter. The actress is just doing her job. But you are, just as you were saying, in that netherworld between what's completely fake and what's entirely true. And I think it's based on that notion, which again you find in China and South Korea too, which is if you don't have the time and money to go all the way to Paris to see the Eiffel Tower, go to a theme park rendition of the Eiffel Tower and something inauthentic can still generate authentic emotion. You may feel as much awe and delight to see the fake Eiffel Tower in Las Vegas or down the street in Japan, as you would going to Paris itself. And so the notion of what is real and unreal, I think, is very different in Japan from ours, and people are more prepared to suspend their disbelief. I have a friend from Germany, and she lives in Arkansas, and in one of the communities there, they had built an outdoor mall that looked like cobblestone streets yes. in between the buildings, and she was railing against the 
the inauthenticity of it. And I said, but in 50 years, will it be as fake or will it be a new type of reality? Yes. Yeah. And I don't think fakeness is, is such a terrible thing. We have it all about us. We do. We, we do, just right? choose to accept it and integrate it into our lives. Yes. And we need it to some extent. And I think the Japanese are just unsentimental in that relation. And when you're talking about anime, which of course sits at the heart of an animist culture, and I see Japan as very animist, a very traditional society in that way. I remember when I first went to Japan and I saw people conforming very intensely in, in, in public, I thought, oh, that this is rather a robotic society. Now I've been there 32 years, I realize it's the opposite. It's not that people don't have souls and look like robots. It's actually that in Japan, robots are believed to have souls. This table, this book, that tape recorder, all have spirits from the Japanese way of seeing things. And so in that way, too, anime is not about inanimate things that have a spirit for the Japanese. The divisions between the animate and inanimate are very different there, and everything has a soul. Going back to your example of the elderly people hiring a young actress to play their daughter, if we look at our art to give us emotional content and, and force a reaction within ourselves and force us to contemplate the lives of others and such, this is just another form of art. It is a personal theater in which you're hoping for an emotional resonance to be as you would to see a play on the West End in London. I love that. And I think you're really onto something really fundamental. I've never thought of that. But the relation of art to life. And we all, as you say, have a lot of art in our lives. That's almost what social discussion is about. But in Japan, it's even more so. Exactly. And then when I hear about that Japanese example of hiring somebody to act as a daughter or granddaughter, I think of the many Westerners of my age, let's say in their 60s, who are quite happy maybe to go to Asia and find some very young woman to be by their side, the so-called girlfriend experience. And the man will always say, you know, this is a real relationship. If you ask the woman, she'll say, no, this is my job. So we're ready to suspend disbelief too when it helps us in certain contexts. But we look aghast when the Japanese do that in, in different, actually more innocent and more emotionally vulnerable contexts. So I agree with you. I, I love that example. Could you speak a little bit, a bit of the concept of yes and not no. <laughs> well, that's the gap on which many in a foreign company founders when it comes to Japan. Because having lived there for 32 years, I've almost never heard anyone deliver the word no in Japanese. Everything is yes, yes, yes. And so, of course, when an American company goes over, do you agree to this? Does this seem reasonable to you? Do you want to work with us? Yes, 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 comes the answer. But hi, actually doesn't mean, yes, I will do it, so much as, yes, I agree to your sentence. And so there are many words for yes in Japan, and a few of them are about acquiescence. And so grammatically, it's like Spanish, they will say, yes, we have no bananas. But at a deeper level, most Japanese sentences are constructed to generate the word, yes, 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 in some form or another. But you shouldn't conclude too much from that or the wrong thing from that. And the word acquiescence comes up in the book, and it made me think there's a, a, the British rock band Oasis. And one of their most popular songs was a B-side called Acquiesce. And the music video they made for it is set in Japan, and it is about a group of these Japanese actors pretending to be Oasis. And they adopt the, the mannerisms of the band and everything, but they go on stage, they sing, they bicker like the... The brothers the yes. would do seems like such a good pairing of the Japanese cultural acquiescence to the song. 
I love that. I'm learning a lot from this. I mean, I can tell I'm in Nashville because you're teaching me a lot about cars and music. But I love that notion of a meta video, which is essentially what you're describing. And the Japanese, in my experience, are very uncynical and uncomplicated in a good way. So they probably eagerly performed in this video, not realizing it was a complicated story about uh, what's genuine and what's not, perhaps. Now, in your time in Britain, in public school there, was religion a big part of your education? Religion was a big part in so far as we had to go to chapel every morning, every evening. On Sundays, we had to sing hymns in Latin. So for 15 years, I went to, through fairly intense Anglican indoctrination, I suppose. And I often think as a writer how successful that is because I studied nothing but literature for eight years between the ages of 17 and 25. I didn't do an hour of any subject but literature and yet I couldn't cite a single line from a poem or a Shakespeare play to you right now. But those hymns that we had to do, learn in school, I can recite verse after verse after verse. I never tried to take them in at the time. Give us a third verse of Jerusalem then. <laughs> oh, did those feet on ancient times walk upon England's green and pleasant land? Something Very like that. Very nice, yeah. And my mother, aged uh, 88, who grew up entirely in Bombay, can certainly deliver all the verses of Jerusalem. They had to sing it in their school in, in Bombay at the end of every term. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all those things right there. So, yeah, who, whoever got kids to sing hymns is onto something wise. I would look up an English performer, whether it be an actor or a musician or a novelist, and see how many of them were born abroad and mm. what that cosmopolitan brought to them in which they would be able to flourish in the arts. Very interesting. I always thought that the definition of a good Englishman is one who flees England. And as you say, most of the great English writers, whether it's uh, Graham Greene or D.H. Lawrence or Christopher Isherwood, all of them, really, Somerset Maugham, are in flight from England, and England being a small, insular, grey and rainy place is a very good place to leave. So uh, it's had that benefit, I think. Um, so it seems a little bit like Japan, an insular it, rainy yes, island. Yes, except in Japan for 230 years they would be executed if they tried to leave, and a foreigner would be executed if she arrived there. So I think the Japanese are very, being obedient or acquiescent or whatever the words we would want to use, of generally quite content to stay in Japan because the rest of the world is such a scary foreign place to them. Whereas the English were given that false sense of confidence that they could go to India or Kenya or wherever it would be, the Falkland Islands, just speak English in a loud accent and everyone would cower before them and say, yes, sir. We're speaking on October 13th, and just yesterday, a huge super typhoon, one of the largest to ever hit Japan, made landfall across the country. Have you heard everything is okay back at home? I have, thank you. Yes, yes, I talked to my wife yesterday. And you know, the reason I went to Japan is that they've been living with calamity so serenely for 1400 years and know how to deal with reality. And when I left California to go to Japan, I thought, well, California is the most American place committed to the pursuit of happiness. And Japan is founded on the Buddhist notion of the reality of suffering. So expectation plays a very different part in Japan from in the United States, which means on the one hand, there's not as much freedom and sense of possibility as we have. On the other, very keen sense of reality. So I remember when the tsunami devastated Japan in 2011, I think many people around the world were surprised at how stoically and silently that Japanese people on the TV broadcast took this sudden eruption from Mother Nature. And I'm still, after all these years, humbled and instructed by how my Japanese neighbors go about their lives through all these catastrophes and assume that's the nature of the world. 
Is there another topic that has caught your interest for your next work? I'm really keen to write about movies, actually. So because I've been publishing books for more than 30 years now, I've exhausted a lot of my passions, <laughs> or I've written out certain of my memories and experiences. And then I thought, wait a minute, here's something that I've been loving all my life since I was a little boy, and I've never much written about. And I think for 50 years, I've gone to the movies almost every week with my mother, who has that great grace of being ready to watch terrible horror movie Double Bill at the drive-in or an Ingmar Bergman movie or anything in between, a Matthew McConaughey movie. She'll go to anything. So we've had great movie-going experiences together. And as my mother is now 88, housebound, not able to go out to the movies so much, I was thinking it would be a way of thinking about some of the great aesthetic delights I've enjoyed at the cinema, but also my life with my mother from age seven to now through the movies. So I'm hoping I'll get a chance to do that. These days, for a writer, whenever you embark upon a book, you know there's no certainty it'll get published, let alone find a reader if it does get published. But I still think writing is a great adventure in life, and so that will be my adventure for the next three years, maybe. Well, we look forward to it. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for taking a few minutes out today and speaking with us today on Book Talk. Oh, it's been a real delight, and you've taught me a lot of things. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pico hires the author of A Beginner's Guide to Japan, Observations and Provocations, which is published by Knopf. I'm Stephen Usworthy, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or Call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.